St. Augustine said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That was his prayer, that he would not find rest until his heart found it in God. And that's us, and that's why we're on pilgrimage. Everyone's on a pilgrimage, they're on a path. Some are on the path in the valley, and it's fairly, it's fairly uh, level. And if anything, it maybe tapers down a little bit so that it's a nice, easy cruise control. But the Christian has been invited up the hill to Jerusalem. It's an ascension that's a little bit harder. It requires that we change. It requires not that we have the external world around us as we want it, but that God makes us the way he wants us to be that the change would happen here. And so our path to rest, we're on the way to our home in Jerusalem. Now, uh, and here in step five, we've seen step one was God, Psalm 120. It's where we saw the psalmist sick and tired of the world he lived in. He used Meshech and uh, Kedar as the metaphors. These these were far-flung places. It would be like Siberia and Barstow, if you will. Uh, These were places that you didn't really want to live, and yet he found himself in these places. And so he's like, I'm tired of this. Woe is me. So he learns to say no to the world and all of its lies and to say yes to God. That's when you begin the pilgrimage, the ascent. You're on step one. Step two in Psalm 121 is simply walk. It may sound so simple, but often it's amazing how often we think we said yes to God and that's it. That's enough. But no, we got to keep walking or else gravity will pull us down this, the progress we've made. It's one step after another. As Ephesians chapter 4 says, Therefore, walk worthy, or the Greek can also read literally, walk in balance of the calling which you've received. Ephesians urges us to walk. You said yes to God, but now you walk in that. Uh, Step three was worship in Psalm 122. And there we saw the joy and the gladness. I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. And so we see in step three, the reminder of why we're on this pilgrimage and that worship will keep us glad despite the blisters and the aches and the pains and the dehydration and all that happens. And then step four in Psalm 123, there's a moment when you just need a lift. You need help. You're like, oh, I am at my strength's end. I'm not conditioned for climbing all the time. I just want to take a rest. And that's where we learn grace is what we need. It's where our master gives us what we need to keep going. And now step five tonight, Psalm 124, help. There are times when the path is going to take a sharp turn, or there are potholes that have not quite yet been filled. This is not a smoothly paved highway. This is a rugged terrain under much neglect because so few want to invest in it. Uh, There are steep cliff edges. Maybe there are boulders rolling down. I just like to think of the narrows. Those of us who live up here know the narrows, the the thin two lanes in which so many hazards get washed under the road. Sometimes we need help on the path. And when we look at the world right now and the things that can eat at our minds, we need help. Now, today is Palm Sunday. And as you see behind me, uh, it says Hosanna on the wall. And that is what the people said. 
as Jesus marched into Jerusalem on the donkey, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna was a Hebrew word for deliver us, save us. In other words, help us. And what a perfect prayer on this Sunday for the world. So this psalm shows us where help comes from. Before we break into it, though, I want to remind you of a a very fun book I used to love, and uh, my kids have actually borrowed from the library. Katrina, if you could put the picture of Waldo up, the first picture. Many of you have seen a Waldo book before, and the chaos of these pictures, right? And you're supposed to, within this picture, find the man with blue pants and a red and white striped shirt with, I don't remember, was it like a blue beanie and the black rimmed glasses? And it's part of the fun of this was looking at the chaos within the scene. There's so much fun artwork going on in the setting. But somewhere in all this is Waldo, and you have to find him. I guarantee you can't find Waldo right now, not in the brief moments that this small image is going to be on your screen. Sometimes we need help to make sense of what we're looking at, right? The chaotic picture in front of you is like the world. But then, next picture, you get a little help. And you see how Waldo is now highlighted? Your eye is drawn to the frame, and you can find him. That's what frames can do, is they can help to isolate everything else around us and help us to focus on what's important in a sea of confusion. You can clear the pictures now. Thanks, Katrina. So this Psalm 124 acts as a frame around the calamity that we experience in life. It's a frame, four-sided frame. Now think about frames they can tell you often not just where to look, and they, not, they, also don't, they, they can also show you where in everything, what is important, where should the focal of your eye be. But the type of frame can help you understand, is this a serious picture or is it a goofy picture? Does this belong in a museum or does this belong um, on the nightstand that your kindergartner made in class with their handprints? And that often determines what kind of picture goes in the frame, right? So Psalm 124 is giving us a specific frame, a way to look at what's going on in our lives. All right, so Psalm 124. The title says, A Song of Ascents of David. If it had not been Yahweh who was on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been Yahweh who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. And then over us would have gone the raging waters. Verse 6, blessed be Yahweh, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help 
Our help is in the name of Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. One could almost read the psalm and say, really? Are you sure? Are you sure that just because God is on our side, none of the things in verses 3, 4, and 5 will befall us? Are you saying that if God is on our side, I don't have to fear anything in the world? Nothing's going to happen to me? We're used to being duped, aren't we, by messages in the world. You might have some actor hired to say, I swear by this product, it works. And then we know it doesn't really work like they're saying it does. They're reading a script. They've been paid to say that. Is that what's going on with this psalm? Is the psalmist just trying to get us to look to God in all things? We have reason to say no, because one, this is scripture, but two, it's It's one of the Psalms of Ascent that actually says of David, meaning likely this is one that David wrote himself. And if anybody knows what it's like to be rescued from disaster, from calamity, it's David. David, who knew what it was like to have a lion charging against his lambs or a bear trying to take one of them away. He knew how to go in and deliver. David, who knew how to face the giant Goliath when all odds seemed against him, when the entire army of Israel was paralyzed before this monstrous threat, when even the king of Israel, King Saul, wanted nothing to do with what was before him. David was the one who knew how to step into that calamity because he knew God was on his side and David brought the giant down. It's David who knew what it was like to have his life hunted. First, he was ambushed in his own home and had to escape by night with the bedsheets through the window, had to have his wife lie for him to cover while he got away in the darkness. David knew what it was like to have people spy on him and betray him and to give his coordinates to Saul's army. It was David who knew what it was like to put your life on the line. And God delivered him through it all. God got him back to Jerusalem. God set David on the throne. I think we have someone who has the credentials to tell us that if God had not been on our side, then all of these calamities would have befallen us. Now I want you guys to notice too that in verse 1, there's this interesting break. If it had not been Yahweh who was on our side, interruption, The psalmist now says, let Israel now say, join in with me. And then he goes back to the beginning of the psalm. If it had not been Yahweh who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have. And he goes through all this series of uh, scenarios in verses 3 through 5. But you notice that in verse 1, how the psalm begins, gets interrupted, and then begins again. That is where we find ourselves as a people right now, isn't it? We were marching through life, and we had plans, and then something happened. We can call it a disaster, a calamity, a pandemic, but it has invaded life. And suddenly, we have to start over. 
But you may notice what often happens when something interrupts and you have to start over. Yes, you can be frustrated and you say, oh, do I really have to do this again? But there's also the opportunity to start over with a new perspective, to re-enter into what you were doing in a way you weren't doing it before. Can you imagine? Look, we're on step five of the Psalms of Ascent. Maybe by now we feel like we've got the rhythm of the ascent and we, we're just in habit mode. We're in routine. We've got this going. We got it down. And then all of a sudden, whoa, avalanche, rock slide, huge cliff in the path. Suddenly, you're not walking mindlessly and just kind of, I got this down. You're paying attention, aren't you? When that interruption comes about, you're, you're more focused on what's going on. And so the psalmist here brilliantly realizes this is not a time to sort of slip in to casual living. Wake up, Israel, and repeat with me. This psalm is important. And so he grabs our attention. And life right now, I think, has grabbed our attention. We're looking at everything again from a different angle or with a different frame around everything. So, let's look at this frame. You will notice that the psalm itself is a frame. In verse 1 and verse 2, we have God. God is on our side. Then, in verse 6, we have, Blessed be Yahweh. All this praise to him, right? And then seven, that we escaped. And then eight, our help is the name of Yahweh who made heaven and earth. So beginning and end of this psalm is all about how God was our rescue. God was our help. He's on our side. He's our strength. And it's sandwiching or it's framing the middle portions, verses three, four, and five, where we see calamity after calamity. Look at verse 3. Then they would have swallowed us up alive. Verse 4. Then the flood would have swept us away. Verse 5. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. And so that's where we are right now. We feel like there is this vicious dragon and its sharp teeth and its maw coming after us. Or we feel like that's the part about swallowing us up in verse 3. Or we feel like the flood is coming up to our necks and we're barely able to keep our head above the fears and the anxieties that are happening. Or some people are so overworked because of their profession in this time. Or in verse 5, um, it just kind of repeats. It would have surely gone over us. We're, we're facing, the psalmist is presenting for us the images of a beast that wants to swallow us and the raging flood that wants to drown us. Of course, these are two terrifying pictures in the Bible used from cover to cover of the Bible to represent the cosmic evils in the world. Um, you might remember Genesis has the darkness and the waters, and it's those waters that aren't apparently very good, but then the land comes up out of them, and God kind of corrals those waters, and then he says it's all good. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a dream of those same waters, and out of the waters, four monstrous beasts come up, and they seek the fourth one seeks to devour the people of God. These are images of empires that are antagonistic enemies to the people of God, to our way of life under Christ. 
And then in Revelation, of course, it picks up the same theme when you see um, what we have now termed, Revelation calls it the beast. We usually use the word the Antichrist coming up out of that watery abyss. And so here the psalm is touching on these themes of absolute terror for the people of God. And yet, you read, they would have swallowed us. They would have drowned us. They would have gone over our head if it had not been Yahweh who was on our side. So that's what the psalm's doing. It's framing calamity. Because sometimes we look to the stars and say, wow, like Psalm 19, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The stars proclaim his handiwork. Uh, Psalm chapter 8, when I look up to the stars, I think and wonder about who is man that God would be mindful of him. Often it's the brilliance of God. It's his creation. It's beauty that causes us to look at him and say, wow, God is good. But this psalm is looking at life from another vantage point. It's framing not the beauty of the world. It's framing the horror and the ugliness of the world. And it's right there putting a frame around that calamity. Then this would have happened, then this would have happened, this would have happened, the beast, the floods. It's putting the spotlight on the calamity, and it's there framing the calamity to say, yet blessed be God, he's good, he's beautiful, he's powerful, he's great, he's glorious. Because if we look at calamity with the right framework, we will see within it not something to be terrified of, not something to lose sleep over, but a wonderful God who has promised to keep us. So, the frame. Four sides to the frame. Let's look at the four sides of the frame that this psalm presents to us. First, we have that God is for us. God is for us. Look at verse 1. If it had not been Yahweh who was on our side. And it repeats in verse 2, if it had not been Yahweh who is on our side. God is for us. And we need to remember that, especially during this time. That God did not send a pandemic to terrorize you. He's for you. And we need to understand that he wants his people to succeed. He's with us. He's for us. He's not the grumpy Zeus like all the cartoons make God out to be. The one up there annoyed with our sins or annoyed with our noise and sharpening his thunderbolts and examining who's the next target that he can throw it at with the big long white beard and the furrowed brows and the grumpy old aged face. That, please do not think of God that way. He is for us. And precisely because we have a tendency to doubt that, God has gone out of his way to show us and to prove to us that he is for us. You might remember in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ran away, uh, when they had sinned, they ran away from God. They went and hid in the trees because when God came through the garden, they heard him. They imagined that he was not for them. Oh no, we messed up. God's here to get us. And really, God is wanting to call them back to relationship. 
And we have ever since been in the trees, hiding from God, thinking, oh, I'm, I'm not fit to be in front of him. So what does God do? He goes into the trees after us. That's Jesus, God entering into the story, coming after us into the trees to say, no, I'm for you. And I will do whatever it takes to cause you to see that. And so Jesus rides in on the donkey to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. I'm for you. And then he dies on the cross to say, I'm for you even when you are not for me. He's gone as far as he can, even to the grave, to ensure our confidence in the truth that he is for us. And so the psalm opens up by letting us know, and we need to affirm this and get this straight, God is on our side, never against us. Number two, God is our protector. He is our protector. You notice that we already covered in verses 3, 4, and 5. Then this would have happened if he wasn't our protector, if he wasn't on our side. This would have happened. But I also want to point out in verse 6, the language here. It says, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not given us as— Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm sorry. This isn't it. <laughs> uh, he's our protector. That's the next step, um, the next frame. He's our protector. What I want to point out is that the psalmist here is in verse 7. He was clearly in danger. In verse 7, we see, We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. This wasn't like, oh, life's been great, and danger came close, but nope, never touched me. This psalmist was in the snare. It had closed upon him, and the hunter was coming to gain him. The teeth were coming to eat him. Whatever it was, the psalmist was in danger. But God is our protector, not from danger, obviously, because the psalmist fell into danger. God is our protector in danger. So this is what we need to realize, especially in the context of everything going on. God being for us does not guarantee you will never get sick. It does not guarantee you will always have an abundance of income to sustain your life. It guarantees none of that. God is our protector, not from danger, because you might see danger. You might feel hardship. He's our protector within the danger itself. Yet the snare may close around us, but he will ensure that the rescue happens. Yeah, we're all going to die. He's not going to protect you from that danger, but in it, you notice the language? Uh, This now is in verse 6, and this leads us to our third frame. Um, The language is that he permits anything that happens. So look at verse um, 6. Blessed be Yahweh, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. The teeth cannot come upon us until he relinquishes us. And he has a set time for all of us. We don't know how it's going to come. But what we can understand is if something is going to happen to us, it's only by God's permission. So the third frame is, I got ahead of myself again. But our third frame is that God is our maker. So look at verse 8, and it'll come back to verse 6, don't worry. Our verse 8 said, Our help is in the name of Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. He made it. Here's the beautiful truth here. In Genesis chapter 1, like I had said before, 
um, it tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. That's obviously what this psalm is alluding to. But what I've always found interesting is that the so-called enemy of creation, it never calls it an enemy, but we know that it's not good until God puts these things in their place. Because at the end of Genesis 1, it finally says, now everything's good. But what we see is that the darkness and the waters, which are apparently the um, things that God's trying to work with to make the earth, they're never, they're never entirely eradicated. God simply puts them in their place. The darkness, for example, look at day one, Genesis 1 verse 3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. So he's, he's, he's dealing with the darkness to bring in life and light and creation. So he says, let there be light, and God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. He doesn't eradicate the darkness. Instead, he gives it its place, and he gives light its place. He brings a boundary between the two and says both have their functions. Also, with the waters, it says the same thing. Let, um, let the waters, this is in verse 9, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. The waters aren't eliminated. They're given a place. And Job chapter 38 talks about how God gave a command and said, the waters shall not transgress the command. He's, he made land, he made sea, and they're not to transgress one another. In Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 22, Jeremiah five twenty-two, God says this, Do you not fear me, declares Yahweh? Do you not tremble before me? I placed the sand as a boundary for the sea as a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. And here, the psalmist, one of the calamities is the roaring, raging seas, the waters, the torrent coming after him. And yet, because God's the creator, and he put the sea in its place, he gave it boundaries. It will not transgress those boundaries without the maker's permission. The maker will only allow what he permits to happen to us. And if he permits it, it's because he's for us. Is that not the most peaceful truth you've ever heard? If it happens to me, it's because God, for some reason, saw it good to happen to me. And here's an important fact. Just because I cannot find a good reason for what's happening doesn't mean a good reason doesn't exist. God may see good reasons where we cannot. We simply trust that our maker is doing what's best. And finally... The fourth frame, so we have God is for us, we have he's our protector in danger, and then third, we have he is the maker of the heavens and the earth. He has brought the lines and the boundaries. Uh, fourth, it's not in the text, but it's clearly present, and it is faith. It's faith. And what we mean by faith here, because faith can be used in a variety of ways. One, it can refer to um, our trust in God. It can refer to our system of beliefs about God. And it can, third, refer to 
our loyalty or our faithfulness, our commitment to God. But here in this psalm, what we're dealing with is feelings can arise when calamity arises that may go against what we believe. I really like, and if you want to check it out, it's worth the read, C.S. Lewis's chapter on faith and mere Christianity, where he talks about this, and he says, I know, I know that a good doctor does not cut me open until I'm properly under the anesthesia. He says, I know that the anesthesia is not going to actually kill me. It's going to temporarily put me down. He says, I know all of that rationally. And yet, despite, no matter how solidly I believe those facts, as soon as I'm on the table, a sense of childish fear arises. And I begin to wonder and say, what if? And I begin to doubt. Right? You understand that? Like, just because you believe something doesn't mean you're immune to the rival thoughts about it. We all have those inconsistencies in life. And here, the psalm is telling us to have faith, to believe in the fact that God is for us. He's our protector in danger. He's the maker of everything and has established our lives the way he's made it. And yet, in the midst of all this, the fourth part of the frame needs to say, now have faith in that, because faith is what you hold on to, despite what your feelings want to tell you. Or as Lewis put it in that chapter, he said, faith is the art of holding on to things. Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason once accepted, in spite of your changing moods. I love that. My moods will go up and down. My, sometimes I will feel more or less confident in God, but faith is my determination to hold on to what I once professed as true, to believe that it's true, or at least hold on to it, even if my feelings are beginning to doubt or to slip, or I'm not really sure what's going on, and the childish anxiety is rising up. The psalmist was clearly going through something, and when you read the other psalms, you know that the psalmist feel at times, God's utterly left me. I don't know what's going on. I'm about to die. I'm pulling my hair out. And yet, faith is the art of holding on to what we once accepted with our reason. Even when our rising moods, our surging, raging moods, sometimes tell us otherwise. And so right now, we have anxiety. And like I said before, some of us just frankly come out and say, I'm not really worried about the coronavirus. I think some of us don't fear that it's going to do anything to us. Okay, fine. Some of us are deadly afraid of it. Um, some of us, we have different ways of coping with this. And I, I do suspect everybody fears it. Um, they just say, I'm just going to pretend I'm braver than that or whatever. Or it's not the virus itself you fear, but it's the way it's affecting the world. Or it's the unknown. The unknown is always a, a stressful thing. The unknown of when are we going to get out of this? What's the world going to look like after this? Uh, is my favorite small business still going to be there? when everything gets back to normal? Or I've lost my job, am I going to get it back? Uh, at the end of this, are we going to lose people within our own community to this monstrous virus? Anxiety creeps in. And here's what's super important for us to know. It's not a sin to feel anxiety. It's not a flaw in your faith to feel worry. That is part of being human. 
but the Christian refuses to let the anxiety or the worry eat at him or her. And as soon as it starts to eat at us and to affect our lives and to cause us to stop trusting in God and to turn into other things for our help, that is when the fear, that is when the worry and the anxiety becomes a sin. To have feelings is part of being human, but to handle those feelings is the art of being Christian. And it's our faith. It's our faith that will help us to hold on to what we know, even when our feelings want to tell us that it's not true. So, worry. Um, worry. Have you ever heard, that, like, worry used in the sense of gnawing on something? Like, a dog can worry its bone to death. That's what worry can do to us. It can eat at us. Just like the teeth here in verse 3 that wants to swallow us, or in verse 6, as prey to their teeth. Worry, anxiety, this season of calamity can eat at us. We have imaginations that I often say is a good thing, but our imaginations can go in the wrong place. We can forecast all kinds of fears, and our imagination can go crazy, and that can really eat at us. See, faith is not what I feel. Faith is not my emotion. Faith is not my imagination. Faith is what my reason is held to based upon what God has told me in his word and the choice to stick to that. Hence, faithfulness. My choice to commit to hold on to those truths even when my imagination goes the other way or my emotions are saying it's not true or my feelings want to give up. That's faith. And that's what we need now. But here's the thing. Faith is not just something that you just... It's just there, and it's just strong all the time. Faith has to be used and exercised. You, you, when you see people that fall away from the faith, rarely do they just wake up and say, I'm done. As if, like, I, I, it was never rational anyways. I'm just going to change again. It, usually what happens is we see people drift from the faith because they aren't using their faith. Faith must be exercised just like the muscles to make it up the mount to Jerusalem on this ascension. It must be exercised. We must continue to ask God for help. Yes, but faith can be exercised precisely in what this psalm is inviting us to do. If it had not been Yahweh who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been Yahweh who was on our side, why? Why the interruption to say, come on, people, sing it with me? It's not because this worship leader was insecure at the silence and the crickets. I know how that can be. I've led worship too. <laughs> but it's because he understands that this is a faith-building practice to sing their beliefs, to recite their faith their creeds, the things they know about God. Friends, we need recitation. We need to repeat. We need to hear again and again and again, over and over and over, what it is that our faith holds onto. Because otherwise, the imagination, the feelings, and the emotions, and the moods are going to swallow us alive. This is why we do church. We need to be reminded. And man, I saw on Facebook, 
part of what's happened with everything is I returned to social media after my like two or three year abstinence and I was kind of going with my heels dragging because I wanted to get as connected on Facebook and with the church page and that part's been great but um, what I have not missed is all the things all the opinions all the megaphones that everybody wishes they had in life that they're using on Facebook and I saw some comments about how Anyone else find it odd how all of a sudden all these pastors are just like thinking they got to stream their messages out to everyone and like they were kind of mocking that like that's not what the church is. Well, that part's right, but I think it's wrong to say that streaming is unimportant because the church is always meant to be a group of people together. That's wrong to say. Now look, we covered in Psalm 122, you can go back and hear it. We covered the importance of being together in the flesh. Yes, that is what the church is. It's it's us pouring into each other. But it is also so vital that we hear instruction being taught that says, no, your feelings are wrong. Hold to the faith. Or like the psalmist says here, hey, wait a minute, everybody. It's really bad out there and there's calamity. But let me put this frame around it and say, recite with me the truth that God delivers us. He has been faithful and he is most blessed because he is our help. We need voices to speak into our crazy, wandering imaginations to say no. No to your imagination. No to your worry that's eating at your soul. And listen to this. God is our help, the one who made the heavens and the earth. We need that voice in our lives. So yes, it doesn't have to come from an ordained pastor. It can come from each other as we write emails, as we call each other, as we reach out on social media, as we watch sermons online. There's nothing wrong with that. We need to be reminded where our help lies, and our help lies in God. So Israel, come now, say with me, recite these truths with me. Well, Some may say, you're kind of reading into that. I don't agree with you. I think it's very clear there. But if you're that skeptic, if you have that objection, just turn a page over to Psalm 136, page of my Bible. um, Psalm 136, and look how it's written. Give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. I just read you three verses of the 26, and all 26 do the exact same thing. The psalmist states a truth about Israel's faith, and then Israel is meant to respond with the same line, for his steadfast love endures forever. What's the point of this psalm? Oh, it's ritual. It's repetition. God doesn't like repetition. No. No, this is recitation. This is, hey, listen, soul. God is your rescuer. He is the one who is steadfast and faithful, and his love endures forever. We are telling ourselves, because we are so prone to give in to our imaginations and worries, he is good. He's for us. He protects us. He's our maker. Let's put our faith in those things despite the calamity. And when we get this oriented properly, that the calamity presents the goodness of God to us. Because framed properly, we realize, yes, 
I can put my head to sleep at night. Yes, I can keep on going with a smile. Yes, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Say that to yourself over and over if you need to. Especially now, there's nothing wrong. God wants us to put our faith in him. Because as the psalmist says here in verse 8, our help is in the name of Yahweh who made heaven and earth. Do you remember that question being raised earlier in the journey? Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? He answered it for us then. My help comes from Yahweh who made heaven and earth. And then we go on a few more steps. But now that truth you were told earlier on in the journey becomes necessary by step five. And now you are repeating, you're reciting this truth because you need it. Sometimes it's not enough just being the head. It has to be preached at to ourselves and to each other. So the psalmist repeats now in 124 verse 8, the same answer from chapter 121. Our help is in the name of Yahweh who made heaven and earth. Brothers and sisters, where is our help? It's not going to be in the news. Please don't let that eat at your anxiety and your imagination. Too much of that is not a good thing. Too much of what everybody else is saying about everything on social media and all those personalities with their opinions, all of that is not your help. Your help is in reciting your beliefs, reciting your faith and your confidence in God who made heaven and earth. That is where our help lies.